0: Welcome to New Books and Film. I am your host, Joel Cherney. Today, I will be speaking with Stephen Lee Nash about his book, Deconstructing Dirty Dancing. The book was published in 2017 by Zero Books. In this fun and informative study, Steve describes the background of the making of the film and reviews the storyline scene by scene to show why the movie succeeded, even though it was generally panned by critics when released in 1987. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Stephen Lee Naish. Hi, Steve. It's great to talk to you again. Hey,
1: Joel. Thanks ever so much for having me back, man.
0: Yes, uh, this is actually the first person. uh, Steve, is the first time I've interviewed somebody a second time on this podcast. So uh, I talked to him a bit back uh, on his book about Dennis Hopper, and we'll talk briefly about that just as a reminder. But, Steve, let's go ahead and get your background again. As I said to you before, a lot of people, you know, they don't necessarily listen to every single episode. So it's always useful to make sure that uh, uh, our listeners have some background of the person they're listening to. So tell me a little bit about uh, your work and then specifically as it led you to be a writer uh, sp- f- about film.
1: Okay, yeah. Well, thanks, Joel, for having me back for a second time. It's a real pleasure to be on. Um, so, uh, as we kind of like, uh, discussed in like the previous, uh, podcast that I did with you last year, um, I actually left school, uh, when I was 16 years old. Um, I was living in the UK, um, and, uh, I just got to 16 and pretty much had enough. So I decided to, uh, to leave then, which you can do in the UK. That's perfectly fine. And, uh, I didn't leave with too much qualifications or anything like that. But I decided that really what I wanted to do was uh, was get into work. And so I, I got a job, um, really lucky actually. The first job I applied for, I got, it was a full-time job working for this independent uh, camera store in, uh, in Leicester, which is my hometown in the UK. And uh, I was in the shipping and receiving department of this uh, small little shop. And so I was for a couple of years, I was kind of just handling cameras and editing equipment and uh, tripods and things like that. So I was kind of just like by proxy getting this kind of uh, secondhand education on what all this stuff actually did. And uh, after a couple of years of working at the shop, I decided that um, I really wanted to go back to school, reset my GCSEs, which I failed so badly at, and also study media and i wasn 't really sure in what kind of area of media i wanted to uh, I wanted to kind of uh, look into, but uh, Leicester College, which is a, a great college in in Leicester um, had this really good media course uh, introductory media course so I did like a one year um, one year course which covered um, journalism uh, graphic design it covered film theory as well as filmmaking and editing. And it was really kind of like just a catch-all kind of course. And I just loved it so much. And so I decided that I actually I was going to do another two years. So I ended up doing in 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 complete three year um, course. And uh, my second uh, well my, my last two years were, were predominantly more geared towards film and filmmaking. So that kind of took me up to about the age of 21. And uh, at the age of 21, I moved out of my parents' house, got a house with a couple of friends, got a, another job, and uh, took some time to um, to uh, actually kind of create my own little um, film company, which was just me and a camera and some editing software, which probably didn't cost that much money. And so I put that together, and what I would do is... Um, I was really interested in seeing bands live, uh, the bands that were from Leicester and bands that came through Leicester. Leicester's kind of bang in the middle of the UK, so it was kind of like a really great place. Bands would come from London and play in Leicester and then continue up north and then vice versa. So we got some pretty decent bands coming through. And I would uh, hang around the venues with my camera and I would you know film a bit of it and edit uh some you know some of the live footage and i kind of just got like a little bit of a reputation around town as a guy you could kind of come up to and ask to film the bands and for very little money so i kind of did that for a few years and um alongside that i also worked full time at a bookstore and so at the age of about 26 27 i just decided like it was just getting a bit too much for me like uh, to kind of like Uh, paraphrase like a quotation from Dazed and Confused, Um, I was getting older, but the bands were staying the same age. They were all like 19 years old and I was like 26. I just kind of felt a little bit out of it and hanging around these kind of venues with like smoky uh, atmosphere and and staying up to like two in the morning was just getting a bit too much hard work. So at that point, I kind of decided that um, I would stop because, you know, I'd had like very limited success in producing movies. But I, it was something that I really, really enjoyed. I never really had any intention of going to London or working or anything like that for a media company. It was always just about doing it myself. And then, um, yeah, so about sort of uh, 26, 27, I actually went back to uh, to university and I studied with the Open University and i studied uh i studied firstly creative writing essay writing and then i studied contemporary politics and that's when i kind of decided to begin writing about film or about pop culture uh, kind of at that point um and I, I guess i kind of feel like a lot of what i've done uh academically and in in my own time has kind of rolled into to the kind of uh the stuff that i write about today so yeah that's kind of my my background really there
0: of course, then you've also as, – as we've already talked about briefly, you've done quite a few uh, – you've already written quite a bit as well. Um, as we talked – as you said last year, we you, your book, Create or Die, Essays on the Artistry of Dennis Hopper, was – when we talked, I remember you saying that that was probably what you would consider to be one of your major um, study uh, subjects for a long period of time. And that book was in many ways, it was a collection of essays, but they were all from various views of Dennis Hopper. So, um, and I even joked that in this book, you even found a way to bring Dennis Hopper back into it, uh, or at least a Dennis Hopper film. So, yeah. um, what led to dirt? Now, obviously this book, um, nowadays, it's not unusual to find books that are devoted to single films, which is great. It means that uh, depending on the film, it gets some extra study and it also gets a chance to bring the film back if it's a film that's not as well known. Of course, this one, Dirty Dancing, is not one that you have to overly worry about popularity because it's still one of those films that uh, even 30 years later there are people who can talk about Dirty Dancing and it, it has joined popular culture. There's no question that Scenes from the film, including the dance scenes and some of the lines, have become part of normal um, popular culture, which is great. And as you pointed out right in um, early on is that it did not get good reviews when it came out in 87. It clearly missed certain people completely. But what led – where does Dirty Dancing fit into your life at least as far as enough – interesting enough that you've decided that it's worth writing – as a book subject,
1: um, yeah. So uh, I, I've had I've had kind of a complicated relationship to day dancing. Um, I guess the first time I saw it was um, when I was maybe eight or nine years old, and it was one of those fixture films in my in my family's household. You know, there'd be just certain films that we just we just had on VHS, and it was one of those films that was played quite a lot. I have an older sister who, um, she was just the right age for it when it came out. Um, so a lot of it comes from her. And, um, I remember just like the first time, well, the first few times I saw it, I just, I did just love it because at that age, you're not aware of what's cool and what isn't. And, uh, you know, it, it doesn't matter, you know, if you just like something, you like it for no matter what. And I remember being really kind of drawn initially to the, um, The soundtrack, which, uh, you know, is just, I mean, it's an incredible soundtrack even today. I mean, it just sounds incredibly fresh. Um, But, you know, a lot of the music that comes from that soundtrack was kind of like late 50s, early 60s and into kind of like the mid 60s. And there are also also some 80s songs on there as well. But, you know, I kind of felt like that soundtrack kind of was what my parents would have been listening to when they were younger. And that, that kind of music was in my house as well, even when I was a kid. And I think so. Initially, I was really drawn to it for that reason. And then um, also as well, like being a kind of young male, you often look to popular culture uh, for ideas about how you're going to be when you grow up. And, you know, in the 1980s, as a young male, you you kind of very much drawn towards uh, unfortunately, you know, kind of more drawn towards the Arnold Schwarzeneggers and the Sly loans of the of the popular culture back then. And um, I remember just sort of like being incredibly like taken back by by Patrick Swayze's character Johnny Castle because he is actually, I think, an attainable version of masculinity, and he has like a sensitive side as well. So I kind of felt like like that was my you know, it, that's the kind of guy I want to be when I grow up. I, you know, Schwarzenegger was not an obtainable version of masculinity. And so, yeah, that was my initial response to it. And then as I go into my, like, teen years, um, you know, for me that film kind of fell off the radar a little bit. But for a lot of, like, um, girls of that period of time, it didn't. Like, it was a continuing thing, and it was one of those things that was passed on and on. So when I, you know, got to, like – 15, 16 years old and started like, you know, dating a little bit Um, in the very kind of loose sense there of dating. Um, I kind of uh, it became almost like a cursed chalice, that film, because that version of masculinity that uh, was so appealing when I was a kid, all of a sudden became a kind of uh, uh, well, it became competition almost because there was no way that I was that that cool. And so my relationship with the film really changed and I I, I no longer thought that it was a a good film. I thought it was actually a pretty terrible film. Um, But even though that was still happening, I still kind of did maintain that the the soundtrack was still was still pretty solid. And then, you know, I got to my kind of late 20s and a bit more kind of comfortable with the with myself and with my own kind of uh, with my own masculinity enough to kind of watch the film again And also, you know, I'd just been a bit more educated. You know, I'd I'd read up on politics. I read up on popular culture. And, uh, you know, I just, the film just addresses so much, so many issues that it's actually an incredibly important film. So what I kind of felt about Dirty Dancing was that over almost like two decades of of it being, you know, kind of uh, familiar to me, it kind of, it changed. Um, It'd gone from a film that I'd, loved to one that i'd hated to one that i could love again and so that evolution was i kind of like um was just really interesting to me and i can't really think of another film from that time that has that's ever done that you know a lot of films from that period of time i may i may still love them but they're they're guilty pleasures or they're juvenile pleasures they're not something that has evolved into something that's completely different today so that's kind of like, I just thought Dirty Dancing was just a really interesting um, idea to write a book about.
0: Your description of how, uh, of what really got you or what really drew you in with Dirty Dancing, there's a lot of, there are films that I think you can point to or that people can point to individually. They, they could say the same thing that there was just something about that film that drew them into it enough that they wanted to continue to go back to that film. Not everybody has the ups and downs like you did, but one for me, and I'm a little older than you, would be American Graffiti. Um, same time period almost. Uh, we're within about the same year or so as, as to when uh, American Graffiti takes place. But once again, it's the soundtrack, and there's just certain aspects that you uh, identify with as a as an individual. And so I can see where things like the soundtrack, and I'm thinking about some other films that have the same concept, where people to this day still remember them fondly, and, um, things like the soundtrack, I mean, they can of grease and a number of other films where the soundtrack is what, uh, keeps people remembering them. Even, uh, even if they haven't seen the film for a while, they can recognize immediately lines from the film and music from the film and so on. So I can see Absolutely. where you can get drawn in by a film in this yeah, case with I t- you I, Dirty Dancing.
1: I totally agree with that. And I think, yeah, American Graffiti obviously wasn't a film that, um, was around for me when I was a, a kid, but I, I, I've heard numerous, uh, examples of that, uh, of, um, American graffiti being a, a film that kind of did. And, you know, just to kind of like, uh, give you another, um, idea of like a film that never changed was, uh, a film from when I was a kid called the bachelor party, which, uh, had a really young Tom Hanks in it. Right. And Adrian's med. And that film again, for me was, uh, just so, so funny. It was kind of like an Animal House style of, you know, boisterous kind of comedy. Right. And, you know, I've written about it a few times because it kind of is a film that I think isn't really important, but it's kind of an interesting film. But that film for me, like if I watch that today, I'm, I, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of disgusted as well because it's so misogynistic and, uh, you know, so grotesque. So, you know, that film for me never really changed at all. But, you know, Dirty Dancing really did. So, yeah, just to kind of like throw in an example there.
0: I think another one that's sort of on the same level, but it it says would be for me would be things where I would put in Blues Brothers, where once again, soundtracks important, but certainly was not great filmmaking. And another one I'm can thinking of, it's on the same level for me, is Caddyshack. Those are once again films that they weren't meant to be great art, but they're still there and they're still in your mind and they've become yeah, popular yeah. culture. I do remember yes. Bachelor Party quite well. Uh what it's interesting that I you're right, Tom it's a very early Tom Hanks film. He had been on TV for quite a while, but it was probably one of his first feature films or early ones. And mm-hmm. yet the thing about it is is that it's still very it showed if you watch that now and i think as you point out i it does i think it's worth reaching out for if you've never seen it before because it definitely shows what i think you can see what tom hanks can do even back well, then
1: he, like he's hilarious in that film like the physicality of his performance and also you know the, uh, there's adrian's mad as well who's in it and he's really funny too and but you know there's just some really awful misogyny in there and uh racial stereotypes which was you know which was predominant in the 1980s anyway but uh yeah that's a that is a film that um i can't i have to kind of cringe through to 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 kind of watch it but still it does resonate somehow so very weird yeah
0: and it's, it's the last thing i wanted to mention this is just my opinion but i sometimes think that George Lucas should have been best known for American Graffiti, and if he hadn't done that little space film, I still <laughs> think he would have gone down as one of the, you know, one of the great films of all time. With American Graffiti, there's just so much there. But anyway, so you've decided you you the film obviously resonated enough with you to write about it. Um, what? Uh, how did you decide to approach writing about the film when you were first? Um, starting to consider. I mean, did this always, was it always a book project or is this something that sort of grew sort of the way that the Dennis Hopper book uh, grew? I know you had mentioned to me that this was actually a book you've written a little while ago. This actually was a couple years old, but, uh, and it's just coming out now because the other book um, sort of got out first, but how did you approach the subject when you were trying to decide what you wanted to write about with it?
1: Um so in my uh in my very first book which is called USA um which was a collection of essays I um for that for that collection I actually wrote an essay on dirty dancing which is included in the in the book so I had I had a kind of basis anyway um but that that essay in that book was kind of um it wasn't rushed but the ideas just were only really starting and when I put it to paper and I just felt okay, you know. There's more to this, but uh, one day I'll come back to it, you know. And I just, you know, pushed that first book out. And uh, from sort of like people reading the book, they they kind of came back to me and told me that that was a real standout kind of essay from that collection. So I, I, I sort of did want to eventually write a book about just one film and apply some of the 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 sort of um, political theories and things like that that were in my first book to put to just one film so looking through my first book i, I thought you know well there's there's so much material here i could write a book about almost every essay that's in there and, and expand on it um but i, I kind of did want to challenge myself a little bit because writing about uh, a film in which you kind of really really love and you've loved it a long time is it's actually pretty easy when you've got a complicated relationship with a film it's actually more interesting to kind of begin that so Dirty Dancing really just kind of stood out as the film within that within that collection which I thought I could I could just expand on this so much because I've got not only have I got like uh, a basis anyway but I've got a personal history with this film which has you know this this film is kind of like um, kind of haunted me throughout the last 20 or so years. It's it's cropped up here and there. You know, there's little bits of it in popular culture and just bits of it throughout my actual life as well, which I kind of go into at the end. So it was just a really interesting, you know, idea to, to just write about this particular film uh, because of the relationship that I've kind of had with it, I think.
0: Let's talk about the film before we go farther because – as I pointed out briefly, and we can talk about this, it, it, it did not receive good reviews when it first came out. Or, or I know you, you quote Roger Ebert's review, which was terrible. Were other critics as dismissive of the film, or was it more Ebert more than anybody else? Or did, was there anyone who championed the film early on, or was it pretty much one of those movies that came out, was, a, was pretty well savaged by critics, but it was the public who made it a success? I think it was definitely the public. It was it was a real kind of word of
1: mouth um, uh, thing, you know. Ebert was just one of the bigger voices of the time. That's the uh, the thing. So he kind of drowned out, right? Yeah, that it received. But I think at the time it did not. It just did not gel with the zeitgeist of the time. I don't think you know this tiny little film uh, that kind of came out around a bunch of like big blockbuster movies that were coming out in the, in the late eighties. So, you know, I don't think that, uh, the critical response was, was amazing. I think there were like positive reviews for sure. Um, but, uh, they uh, actually, um, the reassessment has been way more positive, like, uh, you know, in the last sort of 10 years or so, the actual reassessment of the film has been way more positive than, than when it was first out. So, you know, uh, they did well at the, at the uh, movie theaters because people were going to it and telling people about it. And it became a word of mouth um, promotion, really.
0: Yeah. We still had those films back in the eighties where, they were going to stay in the theater possibly for a while, and the more, as long as they stayed popular, they stayed in the theaters. It wasn't like now where, if you if you stay in the theater more than a month or two, you're lucky, and you're out on video within months. Yeah. And back then, uh, and you know, the longer, as long as it kept drawing in people, those the theaters would keep the film and just go over and over again. Because even though in '87 we had home video, it was still in its infancy in many ways. And so people were still having to go to the theaters to see movies multiple times. So I can see that. Um, It's interesting about Ebert. He actually, I don't want to say panned, but he, he definitely did not. uh, The first time through, he did not review Godfather part two very well. Uh, Mm. It's hard to tell that now because in a lot of his books where he reviews it, he sort of has, it's, it's gone up in his estimation, but it's a good example of sometimes a film and of course we have films in earlier times wizard of oz for example wasn't a huge success it's a wonderful life wasn't a huge success uh-huh. so it's the reassessments that have made these films that the, the the successes they are rather than their initial times but in this case the popular the sheer popularity of the film helped um so what was excuse me <laughs> I'll come back into this. One of the things that I found interesting in watching the film is that clearly right at the beginning of the film, they they definitely want to set the time period. Um, there's mentions early on of Kennedy. There, obviously, they, were, they did everything they could to make sure it was clear that the film took place in 1963. And you see right at the beginning quite a bit of uh, of... Uh, culture and particularly the issue of of class and the whole idea, and that comes up right at the beginning, where the help is not supposed to fraternize with the guests and vice versa. Uh, so clearly, the, the the filmmaker makers did a good job of making sure that they they led that down. Um, when you first saw the film, you were a child. You said you were younger. Uh, when did you start to see or start to be able to pick out some of the more uh, some of the more um, unusual or, or, or culture-related aspects of it?
1: It was it was way, way later because, you know, I had practically dismissed the film for, for so long that I couldn't even think that there was any value in it at all. And, you know, it's, it's strange because when I was a kid, like none of that class issues or anything like that really came into it at all. And in fact, you know, there's there's a... The, the subplot of, um, we we might get into this later, but the subplot of, of Penny's um, botched abortion, I don't even remember that as a kid. So I'm wondering if my parents edited it out because I don't, yeah, that never really even occurred to me until way later. So it was, you know, in my, it was really in my late, late twenties, I'm 35 now. It was really in my late twenties when the idea that Dirty Dancing had a little bit more going on about it really sort of came into play and, you know, it was just because really I, you know, i I'd, I'd been studying politics at, uh, at university. Um, and I'd been reading a lot of, pol- of you know, politics as well and, and pop culture, you know, materials, books and uh, articles and things like that. And so, you know, when I kind of, when I, when it was put on again, like, you know, uh, I think maybe it was my wife who <laughs> I watched it with again, I was kind of like, wow, you know, the, st- the soundtrack's still amazing, but there's so much more kind of going on like here, and uh, that, you know, it just resonated much more uh, as as in, in my late twenties. I think I was a bit more aware of class. I think in my in my late twenties than I was in, 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 as a kid. So yeah, uh, it, it clearly took a while, but I was that's just because I was pretty dismissive of it for for a, a good ten year, fifteen year period. So.
0: Well, that's what makes, I think, the best of any art, whether it be film or books or any kind of material. It's the kind of thing where you know you you can continue to look at it and see the layers, and uh, picking out layers. In this case, as you point out, you needed to be a little older, you needed to have a little bit more knowledge and experience before you could really appreciate that part of it. So, I guess that that points out to its uh, you know how it it deserves its place as being. Uh, a film that has multiple layers. And, and I suspect certain people who, you know, who grew up watching it probably couldn't even think of some of those issues unless maybe now, if they went back and watched it, it would, they might spot it. But I'm sure a yeah. lot of people when they were watching it, when it first came out, that wasn't stuff, that part of it probably wasn't as important to them or even aware of it.
1: I don't think so, especially for a male audience as well. I think for a female audience, I think it is really different. And I think that the film uh, has, has always had a very long shelf life uh, for for a female audience, but for a male audience, it was it, it's either very short or it's non non-existent.
0: So, yeah. So the book itself is basically in four parts. Um, the first section you uh, call "Our baby's going to change the world," an introduction to Dirty Dancing. Obviously, that's a line from the film. Early on, it's uh, the father talking about his daughter, played by Jennifer Grey. <laughs> Uh, what, obviously, your key point in this first uh, chapter is to lay out the film, introduce it, make sure you make your points. What did you want to make sure you included in this introduction to make sure that people were aware of of your particular view of the film?
1: So I think um, one of the main points that I definitely wanted to make was the fact that Dirty Dancing is actually still really, really popular and um, you know, I, I I think it's in the introduction where it still sells a million copies a year in the U.S. alone, which I mean that's that's phenomenal, really. When you kind of think that we're looking at a film that's it's 30 years old this year, so this, to sort of see that still happening and to see that uh, it still resonates within our within our popular culture, like little lines, you know, nobody puts baby in the corner. I carried a watermelon. They're still there. They're still in the, they're still in the lexicon. And so I really wanted to ensure that the reader, when they picked that book up and read that introduction, they were aware that this isn't like some, uh, film, uh, book that basically resurrects a film from long time ago. It doesn't need that resurrection. What it needs is, uh, it to be kind of taken apart, deconstructed, I I suppose, So I wanted to ensure that, you know, the reader knew in that introduction that we're dealing with a film which is still popular and um, has in some respects uh, shown itself to be about a lot more things than it was when it was initially released.
0: Yeah, well, given that the title of the book's deconstructing Dirty Dancing, I think you have to start with the film itself and then start the deconstruction. So, it mm-hmm. certainly makes sense that uh, a, an introduction. One hopes that people aren't reading this book who, I mean, nobody's. It's unlikely that somebody's going to read this book who have either need have never seen the film, or more likely, reach out, you know, go out to watch the film. And and I suspect, in in you've already pointed out the popularity, a book like this would certainly help that because people are going to say, well, I saw that film when I was much younger and I don't remember all of these things, and then they go back and and watch it again. But as you point out, you have to start from the basics, so the introduction clearly does that. But let's talk about the second chapter. The strange um, I'm not reading the... It's called I'm Seeing Something That Was Always Hidden, The Strange Coalescence of Dirty Dancing and Blue Velvet. I have to talk about this chapter with you in detail because, of course... Uh, Blue Velvet obviously was very important. One of the very important films in your previous book on Dennis Hopper. Um, When in your mind did you figure out that there is a coalescence between the two and and how did you develop your idea of that? There is some uh, there, they are come together in some ways. Um,
1: uh, Yeah. So uh, maybe it was just an, uh, an maybe I just hadn't quite finished with with Blue Velvet. (laughs) So I kind of wanted to bring that up again but uh really it, it happened. uh there is on YouTube there is a, a re-edited um film trailer for Dirty Dancing which reimagines the film as if it was made by David Lynch. So you know it's Dirty Dancing it's a David Lynch film Dirty Dancing and it it you know it's there's a lot of um scenes from the original film which are sweet and and uh and innocent, but when they're placed in the context of a David Lynch film, they become pretty sinister. So, you know, just for an example, it's like um, the, the, when when Swayze takes Jennifer Gray's hand and places it on his chest and they, you know, they go, it's, it's a heartbeat. It's, you know, listen to the heartbeat and they're like, boom, 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 boom. It, That echoes over this, over this re-edited trailer and it's just sinister so I thought, well, that's that's really interesting. So, and then that kind of got into my mind that, um, you know, uh, there there are some weird things in, in Dirty Dancing anyway. And I just think, like, if if David Lynch had had an opportunity, it may not have turned out that different. But looking at uh, Blue Velvet, the 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 year they were actually released within a very short time frame of each other. Um, uh, Blue Velvet came first. In eighty six, Dirty Dancing in eighty seven, so they were they were quite sort of uh, joined up in in the time frame that they were released, and both films kind of deal with this kind of um, well, first of all, becoming and leaving childhood behind and becoming an adult, and the films tackle that quite differently. So you know, for Francis and Dirty Dancing, it's it's this idea that there's. Um, this kind of like sexualized dancing, which kind of opens her up to the possibilities of adulthood. And in Blue Velvet, Jeffrey, uh, who's played by Carl McLaughlin, his uh, introduction to kind of adulthood is through sadomasochistic uh, sex. So in some respects, they both kind of uh, become adults through this very kind of sexualized way, but they handle it, both handle it pretty well and uh so i thought well there's there's a theme there that is it is about becoming a grown-up you know leaving adolescence behind and entering into an adult world and then there's also um similarities in the in the setting and the time that it was made and the time in which it was set now blue velvet is a contemporary film for the 1980s um it's set in in a contemporary era but It has this weird kind of like 50s, 60s kind of uh, kind of aesthetic kind of underneath. You know, there's a lot of bobby socks and uh, and flowery dresses, floral dresses. Uh, The soundtrack as well to uh, to Blue Velvet contains a lot of 60s, late, late 50s, early 60s songs. And then you've got like Dirty Dancing, which is obviously made in the 1980s, but set in the late uh, set in the early 60s. So there was kind of some similarity there as well. And obviously the, the soundtrack to Dirty Dancing does contain some 80s songs which shouldn't be there because it's, it's the 1960s. So, yeah, you know, I, I felt like there was just this is a good way to kind of um, uh, for a comparative study to kind of take it in the most bizarre way uh, towards like a David Lynch film.
0: Yeah, I think bizarre. When, when let's put it this way, when David Lynch is mentioned, usually the word bizarre gets entered and and uh, gets included somehow. So you might as well be as bizarre as possible, <laughs> given that your knowledge of Lynch films made the the comparison particularly interesting. So um, I think uh, I agree. I suspect at first glance somebody's going to say that they don't understand it at all, but yet you do do a good job of showing that there is comparisons there and uh, yeah. the interesting aspect of the, of the time period too, even though as you point out the films will take place in different time periods there, you know, there are still films of the eighties Yeah, there is yeah. a, there, there are groups of films from that period that share some certain similarities and as far as aspects, not necessarily obviously individual plots or anything like that, but certainly there's aspects of those films.
1: Yeah, there's also as well like the use of the term baby as well. Um in in Dirty Dancing, Francis Hausman is referred to throughout the film as baby baby Hausman. And in Blue Velvet, Dennis Hopper's character, Frank Booth, uh kind of has an alter ego or a uh, a very sinister alter ego as as baby as well, when he kind of reverts back to his baby and kind of goes kind of crazy, you know. And so that was a um a kind of comparison that I saw as well. And the idea as well that um uh Jeffrey Beaumont in Blue Velvet finds initially finds an ear, um a severed ear, in in, in this kind of grassy knoll. And uh, you know uh he, he that that finding of that ear starts his um ascent to, to adulthood. And Baby's initial introduction to the uh, to uh, this idea of this uh, dirty dancing, sexualized dancing, is also it's a it's a visual one, but it's also an oral uh, you know an oral one as well. She she hears the, this music for the first time in some respects, the first time, and it, it does change her in some way as well. And, and that also begins her uh, you know her uh, 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 sort of journey towards adulthood. Interesting.
0: What, yeah, you're right. Uh, during that period, and this is something that you know, you have to know the period to to get a better sense of this, music was still very much separated. Uh, the so-called pop music um, that the average uh, teenager might hear is not necessarily the same now where obviously we can get music of all different types in normal everyday life, where back then rock and roll, even though it was there, was still very much of a of an outlier thing there you know it was one of those things where parents would make would try to keep that from their kids and it was much easier in the day because you know it wasn't like now where you can turn on any any piece of uh electronic equipment and get music um and of course this is still pre beatles 63 so or at least in the united states so you could see where this could be a brand new experience for somebody
1: oh yeah absolutely Yeah. I mean, the first song that you hear is uh, uh, Big Girls Don't Cry, which is an incredibly like syrupy song. Um, And thankfully, you know, you don't hear too much more of that once we kind of get into the film. So, yeah, you kind of you you definitely sort of see that change happening. Um, You know, yeah. I mean, yeah, it's 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 fantastic. Yeah.
0: So then in chapter three or the third section, this is obviously the meat of the book. Um, this is where you actually take the film and do the true deconstruction, where you literally go almost frame by frame, but it's certainly minutes by minutes in the film effect. The sections are are um, separated by sec, you know, the scenes in the book that you write about are are separated by time, so mm-hmm. that you show what the time code was for the area that you're talking about, and um, this obviously was the part that obviously took quite a bit of time, but uh, it's also the, the part where you're able to really go in depth. Um, was this something that uh, this idea, that this is the way you wanted to write about the film, was this pretty much something that you were going to do all along? Was this, you figured this was going to be the most, the, the biggest part of the film, of the book?
1: Yeah, it really is. the It's definitely the the bulk of the book. And it was the idea of basically, Uh, sitting uh, with and with the movie for a number of weeks actually and um, breaking it down scene by scene because you can write about Dirty Dancing overall but I really wanted to get into uh, just the moments of the film and and really open them up a little bit so the way that I kind of did this was I I wrote this book over about a six-week period I think and uh, the first week was basically just watching the film, no, t- not really taking any notes, just immersing myself within the narrative. And then the following week was a bit more kind of like I, I'd watch it and I would be making notes as I was going along, and and then like the the sort of last four weeks of the of the book writing was literally like remote in hand and just stopping and starting, rewinding, playing again rewinding to that little bit and then playing that again and really just kind of uh really breaking it down so it was it wasn't it wasn't exhaustive but it was you know it's the way that I wanted to do it for this particular book
0: obviously in in, in the first part the first initial one is where you set the, the the groundwork so to speak the background uh right at the beginning of the of, of your of the section where you talk about um babies or Frances, as you refer to her throughout the book, um, her character, and it clearly is an example of a of a period of time where somebody is growing up, both physically but also mentally and emotionally, and you're able to present her at the beginning as somebody who um, is innocent to an extent, but clearly knows there's more out there, and this becomes the period of time where she grows up this summer hmm.
1: Yeah. And, uh, you know, um, she is. I mean, her voiceover, which is the, the only voiceover in the entire film, is that very beginning. And she does talk about and it, it's obviously she's talking uh, from like a future point because she's talking about the summer that changed her life. But, yeah, I mean, she's she's uh, she comes across as very kind of innocent, but, you know, incredibly intelligent as well. I mean, she's going to be going to, uh, you know, after, this, after the summer that we're about to kind of watch, she's going to be going to college to study economics and go join the Peace Corps. You know, she's sitting in the back of the, uh, uh, the car reading a book called um, uh, uh, The Plight of the Peasant, which I can't find any reference to at all. Um, so I don't know where that book actually came from, whether it was just made for, uh, <laughs> just for Dirty Dancing, but I've never been able to find a reference to that book, where it came from. So you know she's uh yeah it's um it's a kind of duality there. She is very innocent, but she also is incredibly te- intelligent.
0: And she's naive. Uh, <laughs> you can get-
1: uh, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, with certain things, certainly she is. Yeah.
0: And unfortunately, and this is what what you point out in that early, right at the beginning, is is that there were people, many people during that period, who had this attitude that they wanted to change the world. And they felt they could and and reality sometimes set in and 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 unfortunately, as you point out in that initial section what would what would occur afterwards and of course, anybody who would be making a film about that period is going to be affected by that, even if it's not uh the filmmakers were clearly had to be affected by what happened in the sixties after this time period because they remember them, but yeah. you have to try to make sure that the character. Uh, is presented without those things in mind. Obviously, they don't know what's going to happen as the years go on.
1: Exactly. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So, which particular? I mean, obviously, as I say, the rest of that particular this section, um, you literally go scene by scene with a time code, so that uh, you you point out what you see. It's a combination of lines. It also includes some background information about. Uh, particular events that are going on. Um, I think uh, that's where uh, you can bring in the, the cultural aspect and the historical aspects of the films, but definitely a lot of culture. So it's one of these, it's almost like you're giving a annotation of the film for much of this section. So what? give us some examples of some of the areas where either from... This study that that came out new, or that you felt after from your previous experiences with the film, and also with your other knowledge, that you felt these are scenes that I think are particularly important to go in depth with.
1: Um, yeah. Okay. So, well, there's uh, there's a number, but one of my sort of favorites um, within the film. It's quite early on, and uh, the the Hausman family are uh, all settled into the uh, into the resort. And they meet a number of people uh, who work there. So they meet uh, Robbie Gould, who is this sleazy uh, waiter who uh, who um, gets Penny pregnant. And there's also um, <coughs> there's also this um, uh, other guy called Neil, who is the uh, who is the nephew of the owner, Max Kellerman. And Neil is kind of like an, uh, introduced initially as a kind of. Um, uh, you know, a possible romantic interest for for Francis. But, you know, we kind of know that he's a little bit kind of slimy and a little bit kind of uh, yeah, not quite the right partner for her. Like he's smart because, you know, he's in hotel management and, you know, he's going to be going to college as well. And um, he's in some respects liberal as well. So he kind of matches up with her uh, liberal outlook as well. But there's a line um, when they're dancing and he asks her, oh, so, you know, what are you doing after the summer? And she tells him that she's, she's going to be going to um, Mount Holyoke to study economics and join the Peace Corps. And, uh, you know, he says something along the lines of like, oh, you know, well, after the summer, me and some bus boys from the resort are going to go um, across Mississippi uh, for a freedom ride. And that's such a, and then he kind of looks at her and he kind of gives her like the uh, the raised eyebrows and, you know, as if to say, Hey, you know, look at me, look how liberal and how like free thinking I am. And I, I, you know, it's a, it's a total throwaway line. And like, I didn't really, really sort of understand what the freedom rides were. And so I, I kind of like, I had to look into that. And so, you know, I, I looked into it you know, initially just on the internet, but then I got a book out, um, by, uh, Raymond Arsenal called, uh, Uh, the Freedom Riders and the struggle for racial justice. And it's just a really interesting thing because, you know, the Freedom Riders were a group of um, uh, white and black kids who, you know, got on buses to drive across segregated states, even though the government had actually brought in uh, that segregation was illegal. But places like Mississippi and, uh, um, you know, New Orleans and things like that, they they just ignored it and they still continued to segregate, uh, black and white. So you know these these uh, these busloads of kids would drive across and challenge it, and you know there was there was definitely like violent com- confrontation, and uh, they risked a lot, and it was pretty noble actually in some respects. Um, but for Neil, that kind of is just like this throwaway line for him. It's just a kind of uh, you know uh, this kind of idea of showing off his liberal credentials. But I'm not sure if he really means it, but. You know, it was so that sort that for me was like a really interesting thing. It's it's one line of of uh, of dialogue, which is you know not in any way important, but it it relates back to what was going on in the 1960s at that time.
0: But it sort of it sort of helps to possibly define him as a character, as you point out. You're not sure if it was a, if he was being serious or if he was just throwing it out to try to impress her, but. Uh, yep. it clearly, uh, it had its purpose in, in that spot. To, it, and you're right. It was an int- even the 80s, the Freedom Riders probably weren't as, uh, you know, as a topic. I know in the more recent, you know, we've just passed the anniversaries of them not that many years ago. So the, the 50th anniversary of the Freedom Rides. So a lot of the more current period, we actually know a lot more about the Freedom Riders than probably they did in the 80s. So, uh, um, but I it, it, so, it, it, yeah. it's an interesting point to make, uh, that, that a, a line like that, was really a throwaway line, but it definitely had its historical and uh, cultural re- uh, resonance there.
1: Yeah, and uh, you know, um, the, the character of Neil as well, you know, he's, he's an interesting guy in some respects because I guess he represents the kind of uh, this idea of uh, in the 1960s of the new left, which weren't quite the radical left, but they were the, the kind of establishment left. You know, we're 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 kind of in the uh we we've in some respects with this last year, we've kind of just rejected that uh by, you know, with with Brexit and with the uh with uh, the election of Donald Trump. You know, that that was the seeds of that were placed in the in the early sixties and it's been almost like a fifty a year um kind of dominance of this like the the liberal and this year we rejected it and it's, it's sort of interesting he was a character who uh was originally meant to be a bit more sympathetic but they realized that if they made him sympathetic then there wouldn't really be a good story for for francis and uh and johnny
0: so what 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 are some other examples of sections in the film sort, sort of similar to that that really struck you in the in when you were doing this part the as you were picking out scenes and and reviewing, because as I say, you, you go into a lot of depth with some of the scenes, and uh, it's clear that they meant, they really did uh, present interesting ideas to you.
1: So um, the very end of the, uh, of the movie, uh, where, you know, um, we get the kind of final performance between uh, Francis and Johnny, they get up on stage, they do their dance, everyone else around them uh, kind of embraces them and, uh, you know, dance a dance around too. Um, so I kind of felt like that was a pretty jarring moment in the film. And so my kind of, uh, to bring in a kind of like film theory side of this, I, you know, I don't think that that's actually what happens. Um, I think that in some respects it's kind of like, and this is just my opinion and I'm sure that the filmmakers and the audience who have loved it for years might disagree, but I think it's worth taken into account. I think that it's a, a kind of like a fantasy in some respects, because at no point during the film, have we kind of witnessed Francis as a character who is kind of like that. Um, so a lot of it, I think is kind of going on in, in her head It's kind of how she would have liked the summer to have ended. Um, and there's a few kind of like, I I think what they, I think that they're clues. Um, so just before Johnny Castle walks in and, and says his famous line, nobody puts baby in the corner, we kind of have this still shot. Uh, well, it's kind of like a zooming shot of, of Francis. And she's looking up at the stage and there's a performance by the Kellerman um, uh, staff. And she's kind of, she kind of looks dazed. She looks like she's daydreaming. And then Johnny walks in uh, and goes, you know, goes up to the table, delivers the line takes her up to uh, takes her up to the stage and they do their dance, and again, like you know, the dance is to um, uh, I've had the time of my life, which is a 1980s song, and you see uh, Johnny's cousin put a vinyl record onto the onto the uh, um, onto the record player, playing a song that wouldn't exist for for 30 years, and I just feel like you know, it's kind of just how. Francis would have I think liked to have had everything ending like tying up all the kind of loose ends uh, of that whole summer you know everybody kind of coming together her dad not necessarily apologizes to Johnny Castle but does does kind of acknowledge that she that he had an impact on her during that time uh Robbie Gould gets his comeuppance um the only person who doesn't kind of interact is 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 a character called Vivian Pressman who was who Johnny re- earlier had rejected uh because of her sexual advances he he rejected her after a after a few kind of uh, uh times that they'd been together and uh you know i kind of just felt like well maybe this is just kind of like a theory that you might read on on reddit or something like that but i don't know i i kind of like bringing that into it this kind of idea of a uh, of a fantasy, and you know, if you read like interviews between uh, at that time, Patrick Swayze kind of said, you know, he didn't really see that him, uh, his character, and, and Francis would uh, ever have had a future together. You know, and he sort of thinks that the time that he kind of drove away during the film was the was the end. That was their relationship; they would never see each other again. But in in you know in the film, he comes back. So I don't know, like, I just really thought that that scene was in some respects quite jarring because you don't see anything like that. And there's also as well, like the lift, which the famous lift where she runs at him and he puts her up in the air and they they hold it there for like five seconds or even more. You know, that was never performed in the film. Like they never got that right. But for somehow they got it right during that scene and they could never do it um, before that. And they were out of practice as well because they hadn't been doing that kind of dancing. They'd been doing their own, uh, you know, this kind of uh, uh, Cuban rhythm dancing that they'd been doing for so long. So I, I don't know. That scene to me just kind of felt like this needs to be looked at in a different way, I think. Like, it, it's OK just to break it down and, and tell tell people what happens. But let's bring in another angle. Let's sort of say, well, this is possibly some sort of fantasy that, that, uh, that Francis is having. About how she would have liked to have things to have gone in her own mind, but you know, in the reality, it never really happened.
0: Well, given that the entire film is her reminiscence, you know, her reminiscences exactly. on the period that wouldn't be completely out of the ordinary. You almost, it's almost like there was one more section, like at the end of To Bring Back American Graffiti, where we're told what happened to every person, and who knows, maybe something different happened with Johnny or who, it's it's it, it's an interesting concept, but. Uh, it, it, these days, alternate endings and different ideas, it's not a big surprise that maybe the original, they had different ideas and decided to end it that way. Or as you point out, that there is a little bit more to it than just this great dancing that sort of, let's have everybody happily ever after at the end.
1: Yeah. I think that, I mean, it, the, the film needs it. Like it needs that scene. It needs that idea of bringing everyone together. But whether it actually really happens... That's kind of my my sort of point there. Yeah, but, you know, Dirty Dancing itself as a piece of entertainment, like it really does need that scene to happen. You know, we need to see the resolution between Johnny and uh, and Francis, but we also need to see everything else as well. We need to see everybody coming together, even Neil, you know, even poor old Neil, uh, you know, he's he's happy as well in, in that final scene. <laughs> so, you know.
0: Well, then, and then finally, the last chapter of the book, you subtitled it a personal essay because it's, it's obviously the point where you finally, in writing, get to come to grips with the film, given your up and downs with it. So, um, obviously, yeah, this, it's a conclusion, but it's also a good way to present your, how you see the film and how the film still is effect, affects you.
1: Yeah, so um, as I kind of mentioned earlier, this, this film kind of has kind of like cropped up throughout the last sort of 20, 25 years, um, you know, and little bits of it kind of do remind me of things that happened in my own life as well, you know, kind of, I, I was aware quite early on, I think that, you know, the holiday that that they take in Dirty Dancing was nowhere near the holiday that I was taking with my family. You know, they, they went to the, the Catskill Mountains, uh, you know, in, in the UK. We went to uh, Devon, <laughs> you know, or Cornwall. And, you know, it was, you know, you, you become aware of it a little bit. And, um, you know, there's also like things that have happened to me, like, uh, if, you know, when I was a younger man, uh, which were kind of mortifying in that kind of, I carried a watermelon, Kind of way, you know. I've said a similar line, you know, to, uh, to 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 a girl, you know, to try and impress. And it's like, yeah, I can just kind of raise Dirty Dancing as sort of like points where it's just happened to me as well, you know. But uh, yeah, I was never, I, I you know, I never achieved the kind of level of coolness that Johnny ever did, and you know, and yeah. So um, yeah, it's, it's an interesting film to kind of look at from a personal angle as well.
0: Any good film hopefully hits you in a personal angle, even if it's, even if you're looking at it at the most on the most educational or um, detailed level. There's still going to be a personal aspect of it to it. Otherwise, you wouldn't want to write about it. Why write about something that has no personal aspect to it or it doesn't affect you personally?
1: Exactly, and I think as well, you know, it, this it's all in 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 reminiscence of uh, uh, of looking at it from. Not at, not during my life, but looking at it from now and looking back and reminiscing and thinking, wow, you know, I had some really weird, dan- dirty dancing moments throughout my life. And you know, the film has cropped up as well. You know, just you know, like ha- by just kind of like hanging out with with previous girlfriends. You know, we I, I have to do the male the the male thing. You know, take one for the team and sit through it. Uh, with like gritted teeth and folded arms and just kind of get through it um but i'm glad that that's not how i view the film now so
0: So basically you you reminisce about the film the way baby reminisced about that summer
1: (laughs) exactly yeah yeah
0: so what other kind i mean what other writing are you are you in the middle of is there anything that's coming other uh, other film studies coming up or other kinds of projects that you're working on
1: um, well, at the moment, um, so uh, as I said, this this book I've kind of been sitting on for like two years. So the Dennis Hopper book kind of took over for a little while, but I'm really glad to see this one out and, uh, you know, concentrate on, on like getting this out a little bit more. And um, I'm not really doing too much with film right now, but uh, last month I, I signed a, a contract with a publisher in the UK to uh, to write a book on uh, this um Welsh uh, rock band from the 90s or well not from the 90s they're still going today uh called the Manic Street Preachers uh they're a they're a really popular band in the UK and Europe maybe not so much in the United States or Canada but they've kind of been an obsession of mine since I was maybe 16 years old and you know they were a a pretty radical political well they started off as being like a radical political punk band and then they got really, really popular. And I, my book kind of questions their their politics in some way. And, and it, it's kind of a biography, but also a kind of, uh, uh it, it, actually it, it's similar to the film stuff. I look at the the band, but I also look at what's going on around, around them as well in, in UK politics and in international politics. So yeah, I'm kind of taking a little bit of a, a swing to, uh, towards music with, with my next book. But, um, I think you know film. Film is always going to be on my mind, so I, I don't think it'll be the last film book that I that I sort of venture into.
0: Can't we can't stop talking? You know, we can't finish the conversation without talking about the fact that this book had, a, unlike a, your your Dennis Hopper book, which of course had a photo on the front cover, this one actually has a drawing that is clearly shows every you know has all little bits and pieces of the film little scenes what how did you get and develop the front cover i know what what was the story of that
1: uh so the 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 front illustration is uh by my friend uh rebecca carter who uh has her own sort of artistic businesses in called the right signs which she's based in the uk and you know i've known her for like maybe 15 years like for a long time and uh, I knew that she was an incredibly talented artist. And I approached her to do uh, an illustration because I didn't really want to. I was looking at photographs from the film and, you know, they're just film stills, right? I mean, it's all recognizable. It's all iconic. But I wanted this idea of like the, the idea of deconstruction to be kind of uh, a prominent feature of the, of the cover as well. So I got in touch with her and we we discussed it and she came back with a couple of um, ideas and illustrations and eventually it it worked its way into the the cover that's actually, that's on the book now. And, you know, it is, it is just little um, iconic bits uh, from the film. You know, there is a, uh, you know, there's a leather jacket, there's a, there's a clock, there's a, there's a, a watermelon, there's a baby, There's a a fold-out table with a a rusty knife, you know, and um, because of the blue velvet thing as well, like, I wanted that just incorporated a little bit, so she put a white picket fence on the back as well. So, uh, yeah, like, she just did an amazing job on on putting that cover together, and uh, I'm really, I'm really, I was really pleased with it.
0: Well, it was great talking to you again, Uh, hopefully At some point, something else will come along, and we may actually do three interviews, so (laughs) depending. Uh, But anyway, I appreciate you taking the time, and I'm glad that uh, we got a chance to talk about Dirty Dancing in this book. And I hope uh, you continue to have success with your writing.
1: Well, thank you very much, Joel. I really appreciate your time, man. Thanks, Steve. Thank you.
0: My great thanks to Steve for his time. If you are a fan of Dirty Dancing, I'm sure that you'll find new ideas in this book. This is Joel Cherney, and I will be back soon with more new books in film.